American Another American Scouser podcast. Uh, very special guest today, kind of like a special episode we're doing over here. Uh, today I'm your host, Timuchin, and with me is Gordon. Uh, how's it going, Gordon? Hey, Timuchin, how's it going? Uh, pretty good, sir, pretty good. And our special guest, actually Gordon's big man, father of Gordon, is Graham Lee is joining us. How are you doing today, Graham? I'm doing good, thanks. You guys all doing well? Uh, trying to hang in there, I think. Uh, we just had a pod like a couple of days ago talking about how to kind of deal with sports now with the virus world, but it's been kind of like an interesting month over here. So, uh, trying to one find of the reasons. What was that, Gordon? Trying to find a new hobby to fill the void. Uh, yeah, I'm actually getting to my old ones, which has been kind of nice. But uh, the reason, actually, like, the. If you have been following the sites uh, in our like my Liverpool story, actually we have a one of the very first posts was from Graham. So I kind of if you want to go ahead and like take a look at that and like read uh, the story behind, you know, like his like growing years in Liverpool, uh, how he became a fan and stuff like that. It's like a really really good read. So I would definitely recommend that. And we are always always looking for more uh, Liverpool stories too. So feel free to submit yours. But um, the main reason, I mean, this whole thing came about, I mean, I've been kind of like looking forward to doing this for a while and having Graham as a, you know, like a host in our podcast um, is obviously like the whole like the furlough situation and stuff like that. And the different takes that came from the people of Liverpool compared to maybe like the U.S. fan over here and stuff like that, that did not really understand the backlash of some of the Liverpool fans that are from Liverpool or, you know, UK in general. So kind of figured uh, Gordon Graham is like a perfect combination of someone from the city, uh, but at the same time has been here uh, almost 30 years now, right, Graham? Just over, actually. Yeah, so, I mean, kind of like can understand this aspect of things, and I'm hoping, you know, you can kind of put it into perspective in terms of... Um, Explain to like the American fans mostly in terms of like why the backlash and stuff like that. But so this is probably going to be a podcast that's going to be nostalgic to uh, fans from Liverpool or UK and hopefully a lot of information and kind of like a insight to some things to some of the American fans, especially some of the newer fans. So uh, but before we kind of like get into that, I kind of get wanted to get more of a background while we have somebody from Liverpool and from Europe who can kind of give us some perspective. One thing I kind of wanted to ask you, uh, now that you, you've seen the sports uh, spectrum over here in the U.S., uh, and obviously, you know, growing up in Liverpool and being a Liverpool fan, how would you, Graham, compare being a sports fan here compared to being a sports fan, which mostly in, you know, in the U.K. means being a football fan back home? Yeah, well, when I was growing up, I mean, obviously it's changed now, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, football was absolutely everything to me. A result would actually cover your whole entire week, not just a weekend. So Liverpool have a bad result. It kind of bums you off for Saturday and Sunday. But uh, back in the day, trust me, it was the whole week. And, and my mom used to tell stories how... You could tell just how well or poorly Liverpool done by the number of bruises on some of the wives' faces. I mean, it was that bad. <laughs> uh, but one, you know, one of the big problems in England in the 70s and early 80s was the team that you followed or even the sport you followed or didn't follow went a long way in determining just how you were perceived and ultimately shaped the person that you became. 
Uh, it was everything. It really was. And during that time, there was the hooliganism that was going on. That was rife. I mean, I know when I first came over to the States, everybody used to say, oh, soccer, everybody's a hooligan. But back in the day, that was actually the case. Uh, there were a few women going to football games at that time. Kids were all herded into the boys' pen at the particular clubs at Anfield. The boys' pen was situated uh, at the west end of the main stand, just down by the cop, down at field level. And we'd all be crammed into there as kids. Uh, but also from the violence perspective, my say, it kind of added to the whole experience in a perverse kind of way. It was electric. It was going to a game wasn't just watching the game. It was living the game. Uh, my very first big game memory was actually I was down at the wall behind the Rangers end at Hampden Park. Scotland were playing England there. And there was a crowd of like 120,000 plus. And my lasting memory of that day, and it was only a little nipper at the time, only a kid, was looking up at the sky that was turning brown by the beer bottles flying over my head. So it was a, a different world back then, trust me. Uh, but uh, there was England actually beat Scotland that, that, on that day, so a lot of beer bottles actually flew over. But even my local team that I followed, which was Southport, uh, which is now just a suburb of Liverpool itself, they'd be lucky to get 3,000 fans going to one of their games. But at the back of the Skezzy end, which was their popular end, which is the cop, if you like, it would be festooned with burning scarves and banners that the, the Skaysbrook boot boys had relieved from all the visiting fans. That's where it was there. It was, it was very electric. So in the away days, whenever you would travel with your team, be it Liverpool, Everton, even Southport, you'd always be met at the train station by a posse of police, a mounted police, and they would march you through the city centre or the town centre and an escort. So but one of the biggest differences that I've, uh, changes that I've seen over the years is uh, was in those old days, and it may be the same over here as somebody back in my generation, was the accessibility of all the players. You know, I used to kick a ball around with Howard Kendall when he came home from training. Uh, I'd be 10 years old. I think he was 19. He just signed for Preston North End from uh, from to Everton from Preston North End. He was the youngest player at the time ever to play in an FA Cup final. And here he was on a street corner just kicking a ball around with some 10-year-old kid. You know, it was it, everybody and everything was so accessible in those days. And as I got older, you'd hang out in the bar, you'd go for a drink with Kenny Dalgleish at the Fisherman's Rest in Burtdale, or Jockey Hansen at the Grapes in Freshfield. It, it was more a community thing. It was more a way of life. It wasn't just going to the game, watching the game, taking in the result, have a few beers and then move on with your life. It was everything. It really was. Do you feel like the when we talk about like the passion for the sport, because I mean, I'm originally from Turkey and I think it's the same way where, you know, like you're saying, football is everything. Yes, there are other sports, but football is 90 percent of everything. And so it's almost like if an average American fan that, let's say, is in Chicago, uh, like it's almost like taking their passion that they have for the Bulls, White Sox or Cubs, whichever one they follow, and the Bears all combined into one. 
into one team and one sport. I mean, is do you think that's why like the extra passion and sometimes unfortunately like the violence and stuff behind it comes from? Because it means that much more. It means like everything. I think we invested a lot more in the sport. Um, I, I would say it's almost like uh, supporting a college football team, but you have knowledge of the game. So everybody gets all riled up and you have your, you know, your tailgate parties and people are getting prepared for the game from Thursday through to the Saturday football game or what have you at the college level. And you go and it's a great event and you party afterwards and what have you. But I would always say that maybe 30% of the fans, and I don't want to be disrespectful, but 30% of the fans really know the intricacies of the game and what it really means. Whereas the soccer, you've got that three days prep, the two days coming down, the three days coming down from the game, the game, and you've got knowledge and you're talking to people with knowledge. I think um, Gordon might tell you when he went, was at Anfield last year, one of the things that stuck out for him was just the, the deep set of knowledge of the fan on, this, on the terracing. I mean, you know, it's, it's really deep. So, so Gordon, like growing up, I mean, you were born here and growing up here. Is it like, did you have a different experience, you know, having Graham as a father who kind of has this like really deep soccer background compared to your like other buddies who, you know, like soccer is like, was is over here mostly like great for the U5s and U6s. And it seemed like, oh, like in the past, at least they would develop into like different sports. Oh, you definitely, 100%. Because it used to be growing up, uh, I couldn't wait for dinner to finish because we always used to kick a ball in the backyard. And that, that probably started as soon as I could stand, probably like four or five years old. And also, like, I I had the background where after a game or even before a game, we talk about the game in general, like the, the movements of the players, the positioning of myself and, like, what I could do better. And I always used to get the, you know, I'd, I'd put three in the back of the net and then, I'd go in the car and ask if uh, if I did a good job, and he'd always say, "Yeah, you did great." But that third goal, you probably could have slotted over and given your buddy Jim a goal there, but that's <laughs> fine. So I think I think that I was always able to see where, like most of the kids, I felt now looking back, you know, the parents signed them up because it was something to do. Whereas like when I went to go play, I was there to play soccer. Like I just wanted to be the best on the field, and I think that I sort of had an advantage growing up from that. And so, like, Graham, coming back to you, when we talk about, like, the passion and stuff like that, and you were talking about, like, how it was a community. And I think, you know, obviously, as the clubs get bigger over the years, that has changed. But that's something I wanted to touch on. I mean, would you consider Liverpool, in terms of, as a club, kind of, like, more unique, maybe compared to some of the others, as it stayed more of a community? I know it's nothing like, you know, the old days, but... It almost feels like it's a club that has stayed as a community more than most of the others. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's Liverpool and, and also Everton, actually. I mean, it, it's the, the whole community of Liverpool, the whole culture of Liverpool lives and breathes within those two clubs. Uh, it reflects the, the Liverpool psyche. It really does. And I think that's uh, – there's a few teams of that around. Newcastle, definitely. Um, I would I would probably say maybe Stoke City, but uh, not too many others. Glasgow Celtic, Glasgow Rangers. That's probably it. 
So then let's kind of like talk about Liverpool a bit more because I think this kind of like is going to bring us into, you know, like some of the reasoning behind the decisions and like how the, you know, people of Liverpool react to certain decisions taken by, you know, FSG and the club as a whole. Um, I mean, we try, I mean, Gordon knows, and it's, it is a battle to kind of sometimes keep uh, American scouts are kind of like free of all politics and all the other crap and, you know, try to make it more purely of football. And it's a bigger challenge with a club like Liverpool, where the politics is almost like semi-built in. Can you like talk to us a bit about that? How you know how intertwined Liverpool is in some ways with the politics? Yeah, you just cannot separate it. Period. I mean, it, it's uh, it goes back to Bill Shankly days. Uh, Bill Shankly was a socialist. He had social views, socialist views. He came to Liverpool. He found the people there to be very similar. He fed off them. They fed off him. He he was he he was our front man. He made us feel proud to be who we were. Uh, you cannot separate the politics from the club. And does that? I mean, that obviously makes it more and more difficult with the the whole you know sports environment changing. I mean, it's hard to be able to keep up with the other clubs like. You know, like Barcelona or Real or, you know, whoever, uh, some of the bigger clubs with big money without doing some capitalist stuff. Too. Is that like a tough balance for Liverpool? And has it has it been like a almost like a difficult transformation for the fans? Because you almost you almost have to. You can have the cake and eat it as well. It's very tough challenge. And, you know, I mean, I, and I know in your podcast, I know American Scouts, I, I know other podcasts you read all the way where, you know, that there's a lot of bile about foreign ownerships and in Liverpool's case, American ownerships and how they just don't get the psyche and they do this and they do that. They make missteps left, right and center. Uh, the, there's, there is a lot of uh, the, the, the Liverpool fan, the Liverpool psyche, the Liverpool culture is entwined in the club and with an American ownership in there that does rub the wrong way with a lot of fans. And so how, if this age is almost like, I mean, it's really can't be any other round. And if it's, got, it's kind of like a tough situation for FSG as well. And, and credit to them, I think when they have taken missteps, when they have seen the backlash, they've kind of like, you know, taken a step back and kind of like reevaluated their decisions. Um, but I mean, as someone from there, uh, I mean, it's almost like which way do you, do you start giving away from some of the socialist views uh, to make the club bigger in terms of like financially, which obviously brings success. Uh, I mean, obviously this team is still a very high spender. I mean, it's not the highest spender, but I mean, we spent some big money and obviously that money has to come in from somewhere. I mean, how do you find that balance as someone from Liverpool or how do people from Liverpool find that balance? It's going to be incredibly difficult to find that balance. I mean, just the the furlough situation has highlighted it once again. And I, 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 don't think there's a balance. I don't think there's a middle ground. I really don't. So let's talk about that. I mean, can you explain to, because like I said, I mean, you've seen it online and we actually talked about it, like kind of like touched on our last uh, podcast too. But I mean, there was 
views from both sides. And I kind of can understand both having been here and like yourself, you've been here for like, you know, 30 years, uh, kind of can understand the, you know, the bottom line aspect of it and the way I look at it. But I can also understand knowing Liverpool, I mean, because I've lived in UK and I have a lot of friends from Liverpool, I understand the town. I can understand the socialist views and why it would be a big backlash. But I think the average American fan or the newer fan is kind of having almost like trouble understanding why such a big backlash. Can you kind of like explain that to us, hopefully? Yeah, let's make an effort. Uh, someone got invited me onto the podcast. I was a little surprised when he told me that so many in the American Scouser family really didn't comprehend just what had driven the backlash when the owners, FSG, had announced that they were taking advantage of the British government's furlough program. It was going to cover 80% of salaries for the 200 or so non-playing staff of the club. So in an effort to try and figure out just what all the confusion was, I've done some research this morning. I had a look through several fan forums. I have to tell you, I was amazed at the number of very loyal LFC fans who just don't share the same views as me. And actually, their arguments were all pretty sound and compelling. So I'm not here to tell anyone that my view, what viewpoint is right or wrong, but only I'll try and explain why I, not as the voice of, a, of Liverpoolian LFC fans, but rather as the voice of one Liverpoolian LFC fan, was totally gobsmacked when FSG announced that they were going to take advantage of the furlough program. And let's be clear, I think it's a tremendous program as is the U.S. counterpart program but not for Liverpool FC. It's important to understand my background. And it's a background that I share with a whole generation of Scousers. I grew up in a very poor area of Liverpool during the Shankly era. My old man had grown up in Scotland in the same socioeconomic climate as Bill Shankly. So my social political beliefs are very much aligned to the great Shanks. Shankly, though, he didn't shape the Liverpool culture in any way. Rather, he was a figurehead that gave it a voice. He got the culture, much in the same way that Jurgen Klopp has got the culture. And he could relate to that culture, and he made us feel proud of who we were instead of being embarrassed. I also had the misfortune, though, of living and working in Liverpool during the city's darkest times, the Thatcher years. So my reaction to FSG's full part was to be totally expected and is in common with a whole generation of Scousers and the sons and daughters. Trust me, even the Everton friends I know realized immediately that FSG had really messed up and they delighted in reminding me of that. So the issue for me and many others is not so much financial, but it's totally cultural. It is a difference that even though I've lived here for over 30 years, I'm challenged almost daily by that difference. And it can be best summed up by a single word. And I know when I mention the word, many of your older American listeners will cringe. But it's the reason why there's such an instantaneous uproar over FSG's decision to make use of furlough programs. When I first heard about their intentions, I immediately texted Gordon to share my utter disgust. And it seems that that was kind of a typical reaction for many Scousers and indeed most people around the north of England. 
have to tell you that unsurprisingly, both Manchester United and Manchester City shut down that suggestion almost immediately, which is exactly what Liverpool should have done in my mind. I'm not surprised that Tottenham and Norwich have decided to go that route. And I would kind of expect that several other Southern clubs will follow their lead. I know that Newcastle's going with a furlough, which is disappointing. But then we're talking about their owner, Mike Ashley. He's been trying to break the isolation rules for his sports direct enterprises since day one. And he's a real piece of work anyway. So I think in general, you'll see a distinct north-south divide on this matter. So it's not just a Liverpool thing. I think it's a, I really do think it's a north-south divide. So I texted Gordon and his response absolutely floored me. He said simply, hands tied. I was about to disown him there and then. <laughs> really? I blamed his mother for his lack of social consciousness. Then I realized that his response is probably more typical in this country than I had imagined. Here in the States, business is free enterprise. It's embraced and the success of an enterprise is totally based on business decisions. So you see the cultural difference is socialism, pure and simple. And it was reinforced over the weekend when, and although I mentioned socialism, I have no intention of this becoming a political discussion because in the context of the podcast, this is just cultural and not political. But over the weekend, Kushner made mention that the federal stockpile of masks, ventilators, etc., all belong to the government. I almost put my foot through the TV screen and I'm still incredulous that the people of America let him get away with such a statement. Excuse me, but who the heck paid for all this equipment? And who's it for again? You see, where I come from, the government has no money of its own. And if it did, then some serious questions would be asked. Jack, George and Jill gave the government their money through taxes for the government to manage paying for social programs, healthcare, education, defense, etc. It really is that simple. The issues that I come across when I, that are difficult for me when I'm over here in the States is that I pay government taxes like you guys every paycheck every year. And yet we still have to find $140,000 to send our kids to university. Where did the taxes go? I spend almost $2,000 a month on health care insurance and still get a bill every doctor's visit. Where did the taxes go? Made to feel guilty whenever I'm asked to support the vets. And believe me, I sincerely thank the vets both sides of the Atlantic. But surely isn't this a task that I gave the government to undertake with my taxes? So that's what I mean by cultural socialism. Americans, I found as a whole, as individuals, are so much more social, socially conscious. But collectively as a group, it's the Scousers, the Mancunians, the Glaswegians, and even the Geordies. They seem to be far more culturally socialistic. So getting back to FSG's incredibly bad misstep. And remember, it's important to realize that FSG is a business and is an American business, so there is a different dynamic going on. But in my mind, FSG figuratively went out in the street and told the owner of the Curry House on Smithdown Road, which is currently closed due to the COVID-19, and he told the hairdresser on Penny Lane, which is also closed, other recently laid off factory workers sitting on the bench under the liver birds at the pierhead, 
that FSG told them that they intended to use some of their taxes to help pay the wages of LFC's non-playing staff. That, in a nutshell, was why the reaction was so quick and so biting. But then as we digested that bit of bile, we figured out that taking such an action would also reduce the taxes on earnings that the government would normally collect by a further 80%. So the money that would normally have been allocated for social programs, including the healthcare system, the nurses, doctors' wages, first responders, was all going to be cut by 80% also because LFC had decided to make use of the furlough program that had been offered to them. And by the way, we're still talking about one of the richest 20 or so sporting franchises on earth. And actually, the same argument can be made against the EPL players taking a wage cut. Sure, it would benefit the owners, but it would hurt social programs. The players should be donating to programs post-tax. Thank you very much, Andy Robertson, for your your parents and I are very proud of your actions. Way to go, Robbo. He's a real working class hero. So when you see the post on this is Anfield, the cop, six crazy minutes, Liverpool way, American Scouser, etc. All questioning foreign ownership and especially American ownership. This is why. It's very much a cultural thing. Myself, having an American son, daughter, wife, and future daughter-in-law, I totally get it. And I can applaud FSG for the reversal of policy, although they really never should have turned into that cul-de-sac in the first place. Personally, I bless the very day that FSG acquired LFC. But please, ticket prices, copywriting the name Liverpool, and now this, give us a break. And while we're on the subject of differing cultures in professional sports, it goes a long way towards explaining why financial fair play is so vital in European soccer. A sports franchise in the U.S. is a business, which is why we can have the likes of the Chicago Cubs threatening the city that they will leave if they don't receive a sweeter deal or a bigger TV screen. It's a business move, and the success of the franchise depends solely upon good and sound business decisions made by the Ricketts family. But look at this through a community lens. What happens to the bars, the restaurants, and the businesses that surround Wrigleyville if and when the Cubs do leave? European soccer clubs are more invested in their communities because they are the face of the community. It's not that they're better or more socially conscious than their American counterparts. It's just, it's just a different set of values. It is, again, cultural socialism, which is actually the nub of what FFP is all about. They're trying to prevent a community vacuum in the wake of some mega rich owner deciding that it makes much better sense from a business perspective if he just moves the franchise to a new market or even worse, bleed the franchise dry. Thanks, Hicks and Gillette. Sure, at the end of this tunnel that we currently find ourselves in, there's going to undoubtedly be victims. I hear that Burnley Football Club are on the brink right now. And many EFL clubs, especially those in Division 1, 2, and the three National League divisions, they're all going to be in dire need of government programs to help them survive and to help support their auxiliary staff. EPL owners also need to play their part, not just the players. So there is a reason why LFCs adopted a certain song for the club anthem way back in the 60s. And that reason holds true today. So you see, 
You thought you just supported a footy team. Oh, no. Liverpool Football Club, Tramier Rovers and even Marine FC are so, so very much more than that. So thank you. You'll never walk alone. So hopefully that kind of answers my views on the furlough and why my reaction was as it was. No, yeah, that was just awesome. I think it explains and why there is such a big difference between because it is culture. I mean, I think, and I, I, that's why it's so funny that you mentioned like Gordon's initial reaction to it. Uh, so, so Gordon, when uh, Graham knocks sense into you, uh, how long did that take to get that knock sense knocked in? Well, I was I was upset by it because I, you know, I have to listen to the table rants since I was a kid about Thatcher and all that, and how you know she left the the North pretty much to fend for itself, and after the collapse of the shipyards and everything, and just how poorly that city was treated. And I mean, every time that we went over to Albert Docks or something when we were visiting um, family, we used to get those stories. So I, I wasn't happy, but at the same time, I understand the the financial burden of, of owning a business. And I guess that's probably, that was the way that I was looking at it was, you know, LFC is trying to not collapse and go into some sort of, uh, you know, downfall in terms of like being close to bankruptcy or something like that. So I guess like, I was upset, but I was like, you know, what, what can I do? What, what, what is there to get mad about? It's, they make the decisions and I was sorely mistaken when, I mean, it took what less than 24 hours for them to change their minds. And actually he called it from the beginning. It, as soon as I said that, he's like, this won't stand, this will change. They'll revisit it. Don't worry. I'm just really upset. And I mean, absolutely right. I mean, I think that, um, uh, the spirit of Shankly pretty much got right in with the top guys and, and definitely stated their case. So, um, it, it was incredible to see. It made me really proud actually to be part of a club where a, not only the fans are that passionate that they would petition something so quickly and get things moving, but B that the club owners, even being from a different city would hold off and, and realize that they made a mistake. And within 24 hours, not only rectify it, but apologize. I mean, that, that's incredible in, in itself because I don't think you get the same thing from, from the Chicago Cubs and the Ricketts family because as it, it's a business. And I guess that's sort of what I'm used to here. So it was, uh, it was pretty interesting to see, actually. I think that's what it is. We're more used to the business aspect of it over here. And I think that was my first reaction, too. I mean, it was like, yeah, bottom line. And actually, when I, the first couple of posts I saw had a negative connotation to it. And I was like, why? People are still getting paid. And when you look into it more, I could definitely understand the other aspect of it, knowing the city and stuff. So looking at the big picture, though, Graham, so, I mean, doesn't does that make uh, it, it's even more important that, you know, like FSG makes Liverpool a global brand uh, and more successful internationally in terms of like the commercial way, because... You know, the days of finding a good couple of skilled local lads to build a good team are gone. So if Liverpool is going to be successful on the field and get trophies, money will have to be spent and obviously it's going to come from somewhere. So, I mean, is that the ultimate solution for a club like Liverpool to be still community sensitive and understand the culture and the, you know, the the philosophy of the city, but being able to kind of commercialize globally to be able to still bring that money in? 
You have to be really careful with this because now, obviously, we're talking about, um, you know, what the near future of the game is. Are we playing games behind closed doors? Um, so it, it, the EPL as a whole is moving away from the fan in the street. It's moving away from that cultural thing. It's uh, I discussed with Gordon a few weeks ago. It's moving away from the requirement for bums on seats. And we might get a situation where we'll play a few games behind closed doors, and that becomes the EPL from now on. It becomes too costly to bring people into the stadium when they can just have them hang around outside, buy a few football shirts, and go home. Uh, but pay TV revenues. It's, you know, it, it, you got to be careful with that. I was watching on the on um, NBC News this evening how they're talking about uh, potentially running the early college games behind closed doors, and nobody seems to be worried about that. No, we'll do it. It's no big deal because all the money's in television. It's not in bringing, it's not in the community. It's not. It, it, it's it's so much more than just just the game. Yeah, and I think it has become because obviously as it gets bigger, I mean, you hear the dollar amounts being thrown around. I mean, obviously it's business, and that's why I mean these owners are buying these clubs. I mean, they're not necessarily fans of the team; they're basically in it to ultimately make money. Uh, so I mean, but in your mind, in your ideal world. Uh, how would that go about in terms of keeping Liverpool successful on the field while still kind of like holding the values? I, I see us heading towards uh, the end result, which I don't really like, but it's you're looking at potentially a European Super League, whereas whereby a Champions League might be a plan for promotion and relegation into that Super League. There is so much money being invested in clubs that very, very soon we're going to get the situation where the owners are going to refuse relegation. Uh, they've got so much money invested in it. And relegation and promotion is everything in soccer in Europe. And it, it keeps it keeps the game interesting to the final day of the final minute of the final day. You know, you, you take the promotion and relegation away. Uh, it's it's the oh, I'll be so I'll be back supporting Southport. I really will. It's uh, but it, it, and you don't need you've got a Super League. You've got TV rights around the world. You've got Manchester United, Liverpool versus Barcelona versus Real Madrid next week and what have you. It, it, that's that's going to be the fodder for the people in front of the TV screens. The, the the fan is going to move away from that. They're going to move over to the, the Everton's and, and the, the the Sheffield United's. They're going to move away from the top six so that whatever teams make it into a Super League, it's going to become a different sport. Well, I think we've already seen, like, started to see that a little bit because I remember you and I talking. There was like a Monday night game, and I forget who it was. It was somebody. I think it was Palace, maybe the first. It was somebody in London. Yeah, Liverpool Palace, and, and at half time, the, the, nine thirty in the evening, the last train had left London for Liverpool. The last train. It was half time at the game, and it's on Monday night. 
Well, it would, it, who are you catering for in that scenario? You're not catering for the fan. You're catering for the TV audience. And actually, in that respect, uh, Monday at 9.30, you're catering for the American fan. Well, that's a terrible road to go down. Yeah, I mean, I definitely do not like the concept of the Super League, maybe because I'm old too and more old-fashioned. I mean, there's something special about, you know, even though you do have, you know, big clubs and not-so-big clubs and, you know, uh, clubs that are fighting to stay in the Premier League and stuff, I think that's kind of like part of the, I guess, the charm of, like, these leagues, the whole, like like you're saying, the relegation concept of stuff like that. I mean, growing up in Turkey, it was the same thing. That's what I think makes soccer actually a lot more special than compared to American sports, the whole concept of promotion, relegation. I mean, you can't tank a season. It's going to cost you a lot more than one bad season and stuff like that. So Absolutely. Yeah, that would be, yeah, that's something that would be like a disastrous scenario to me. And I don't even know if I will be as excited. I think we're all excited for the Champions League now because it's almost like an exciting side dish as opposed to if it was the main course. I don't know if, you know, yeah, you're going to play another big team, another big team. I just don't know if it would be, it would feel as special as it does, like as Champions League does now. I agree with that totally. But you've also got to look at the trend that we're going with. You know, the FA Cup in the last five years has lost a lot of its luster. It used to be, you know, the upsets, you're looking for the little team against the big team and, you know, the, 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 Fourth round used to be awesome. We'd all look forward to, you know, the start of the new year when the big teams are coming in, who's still left from the third and fourth division, who can be the giant killers and what have you. It's lost its luster. And the premiership might go the same way. We don't care anymore. You know, the Norwich against Manchester City. Oh, we'll bother watching that. It's only Norwich. You know, so maybe the only way forward is a super league of the elite, but it changed the whole dynamic of the game. And for a club like Liverpool, uh, I don't know what it means. You know, if, if I'm, I, I just spent the last half hour talking about, you know, the community and uh, the social, socialistic community. Where does that all go? What happens? I don't know. Gordon, brighten up the mood over here. That's like a really depressing scenario. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're definitely uh, talking to a uh, definitely a pessimist. He he's still <laughs> it's tough to get him to even like the Champions League or even the World Cup because you know back he always talks about back in the day when uh, you know it used to be like single round knockout and there used to only be the 16 teams in and and it, you didn't spread it out and just basically for lack of a better word, whore it out for the TV rights. Absolutely. I know that, uh, I know that even now, every time that the World Cup adds more teams, it just gets less and less interest in it. So. Uh, absolutely. I really do. I mean, it, it's it, it's all money. It's all the big business. And and you asked the question earlier, Tamirchin, how, how can Liverpool move into that big business league? I don't know if I'd want them to. I, you know, I, I and I think Gordon may not remember this. I think at the beginning of this season, we sat down and I said, you know, you've got the concept of the Super League. God, I hope they make it and put Manchester City in there and then everybody else in the EPL can play. You know, get rid of City and we're all good. It's a benefit. So I don't know. 
Well, I, I guess that's the dilemma. I mean, I think that's why I confused a lot of like, you know, fans in the US or newer fans. It's and that's what I was, you know, like referring to earlier, like, you know, having the cake and eating it too. I don't think you can have a successful team on the field now unless you have like a like a miracle season and just get lucky and stuff like that. At least on a consistent basis. I mean you're not gonna have be successful if you're not running the club as a successful business. I mean, personally to me, I mean, knowing the club's values and what makes it special, I mean, just there are not a lot of clubs when in one day the ownership backs away from a decision because of the backlash. I mean, that says a lot about the power of the fans and the city itself. So, I mean, to me, the solution to that is, you know, being more global. I mean, having the fans in here, having us buy jerseys too, having us watch games too and all that kind of stuff, you know, getting the money from all over the world by, you know, kind of like improving the fan base, like the Nike deal, being able to be out in more stores and bring more money in while you can still keep your, you know, core values, but the money has to come from somewhere. And you guys actually, uh, uh, a few podcasts back, you were discussing about the visitors, the, the foreigners going over to Anfield. And you made some great points on that podcast how, you know, LFC depends on those visiting fans, the tourist fans and what have you, is to buy the shirts, to to buy the TV, you know, packages that they can, you know, to watch the games. Uh, made a very good point of that. And it's it's become a global business. Maybe maybe the times of the community and the socialism and the Bill Shankly's, maybe all those belong in the past. Well, I think I think one one thing that may change, and, and although this this period of time sucks without watching the sport, but the amount of money right now that's being lost, and, and obviously as you pointed out, that some some of these teams are going to suffer from it, and some won't survive. But it it's going to put a huge dent in a lot of things. So one of them is that these big clubs really rely. I think they honestly rely more on their preseasons than they do on the actual seasons, just mainly to spread the word. They want, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, nowhere Michigan and all these fans that, that normally would never get to see something like this, get to watch 120,000 people, mind you, 98 degree heat, but they rely and they, they capture those fans. Cause I know I, you know, there's people that turn because of that kind of stuff. There's people that go to a game and go, you know, I want to get involved in this. And, and the club relies on that extra revenue from not just that game, but then that fan then buys jerseys. And then that fan is the one that makes the trip to, to Anfield because he's never been and buys the books and, and, and pays for LFC TV to watch all this behind the scenes stuff and, and get really involved. So now, I mean, preseason this year shot. I think that the transfer market, it's going to be really interesting to see what goes on in the transfer market. But, I mean, this this could put a halt on a lot of those doomsday prophecies. It will change the model, that's for sure. And I think that, like I say, I keep hoping that, you know, we don't have to change anything in terms of, like, you know, the core values. Not, I mean, necessarily like the political view itself. But, I mean, I look at it more as, like, values of you know taking care of your own and you'll never walk alone uh doesn't have to be like a like you're saying doesn't have to be too political which i know it is in liverpool but i think the overall concept can still be there and enforced and looked after you know look after the city that you're the club of ultimately first but while staying global to you know 
be able to generate that income. So which kind of like obviously requires more fans. And that's one of the things that I always run into in American Scouts. I know me and Gordon constantly kind of like kind of battle this because I feel like what is your take as someone who has always sported from birth like Liverpool? What is your take? I mean, how, how do you approach newer fans coming into the club. The reason I ask that is, I mean, I don't know if Gordon has seen, I mean, I'm sure you've seen in our groups and chats and stuff like that, where there's always kind of like a little bit, especially for people who have been waiting 30 years and stuff like that, almost like a semi-resentment for someone who came in four years ago and have only waited four years. You're going to join at some point, um, you know, and the more the merrier. And actually, that's another thing. Part of the history of Liverpool, if people sit down and if they're looking for a team, I mean, you can't go much wrong by following a team like Liverpool because of the history, because of the culture behind it. Uh, visitors who come in, at the tourists, the, the football tourists, it, there's an argument against them. I mean, they, they potentially do deny a seat for a local, but who's to say that local is going to sit there anyway? There's always a local who's going to sell somebody a ticket. So, you know, I think they're actually good as visitors. All I ask is that they sing loudly and they put away the, the, the camera phones, you know, but uh, and enjoy the experience. I, I, I think that's great if, you know, people can... Look at Liverpool, look at its LFC, look at its history, look at its culture and be part of it for a Saturday afternoon. I think that's a wonderful thing. I really do. It's something that I'm glad to share. I'm glad to tell people about and get up and and tell them just how, you know, socialistically bent we really are out there. I think that, I mean, when we started the site and, you know, like our constant goal is that, I mean, obviously we're going to have a lot of newer fans and they might know the team. They might know some of the players because they've been watching now and stuff like that. But kind of like being able to teach the the story and why the club is special, because there's always going to be some, you know, like bandwagon fans. But I really feel like it's a club that once you start following and you find out more, you're going to be kind of locked in because who else better is out there? There's nobody. Uh, so I think it's like that's why I'm hoping like it's more and more important to kind of like share these and kind of like inform people. And that's why, you know, thank you for joining us, because I really wanted to have it on and kind of get a perspective of someone from Liverpool. And you kind of put it away, you know, presented it perfectly, because I'm hoping a lot of people who listen today kind of can understand that perspective. And they might not agree with it. They might not agree with, you know, those policies and stuff like that or the politics behind it. But you got to understand it to be able to evaluate it. And I think that's kind of like what was missing when you got the initial reaction to that. Would you agree to that, Gordon? I think most people didn't even understand why people in Liverpool kind of had a backlash. Yeah, and I, there were several people, because there was five or six different posts throughout the groups. But I felt that there were a few people that were actually trying to explain the, the reasoning behind it. But it was really washed out by just people going back and forth with each other and and you know the one person didn't really know that this person doesn't fully get it and the other person doesn't get it at all and just thinks that they're being attacked so i think that a lot of um the good stuff was being washed away and uh, i think like you said you they may not agree at the end of the day uh but I, you can't make an informed decision without knowing both sides of the coin and I think it's important to know that. And, you know, 
there's a lot of people, I wouldn't say a lot, but there, there might be some people that listen to this and maybe even have done their own research and sort of shy away from a club that, that is so passionate about socialism, but we don't want them as fans anyway, so they can they can find another club, and, and if that's their basis of the club, then that's the basis of the club, but I think that it's important to know the reasoning behind it. And I think it's, if you're really going to support a team that is so locally based and you have to understand what it's like to be a local or, or what that decision meant to the locals, even if it doesn't directly affect you. But I think if you look at, you know, in terms of the FSG situation, I mean, it's ultimately, you can still kind of like respect and follow the local values. I mean, I'm sure FSG as a company is not socialist. That's not how companies get rich. But, you know, is you would think, you know, they ultimately were able to make a decision to say is two and a half million or whatever was being spent. I can I think it was right about two and a half as of now, at least million. Is that money worth really kind of like losing all the goodwill they have created with the success and some of the good decisions and the improvements they have done. And right. they've made the smart decision. So it's a matter of, you know, balancing that business with the local values, which is really hard for a team like Liverpool. And that's why I thought it was uh, good to get Graham's perspective on that. So Graham, as somebody who has waited, one of those who have waited 30 years, I'm sure this virus is kind of really cramping the style, but um how would you want this to end as someone who has waited for so long as, you know, we get the title? What is your dream scenario? Oh, my goodness, Tanuchin, if you, this, this is a real downer. I, I was given this a thought just before the podcast started. And I came to the decision that if I had to choose between the season being ruled null and void or the title being won behind closed doors with no, no parade, I'd have to go with null and void. Really? Absolutely. It's again, it's a cultural thing. It's the city needs to celebrate. We would eventually celebrate, though, wouldn't we? I mean, we can eventually get out of here. <laughs> Just like celebrate. <laughs> You'd celebrate in the local bar or the way we are right now in your living room with a case of beer or something. But it's it's. It's a weird thing to say, but I, I sat down, I'm playing with this, all the different scenarios, and, I, you know, without winning the title with a full house, without the parade coming down, you know, the pierhead, the, the gory, the, it's, it just wouldn't be the same. It, would, it absolutely wouldn't be the same. It's... I, I think that we're doing the right thing. It looks as if everything's being cleared so that the end of this season will complete, uh, be it in September or, or, you know, August, September, and that we'll, uh, you know, consolidate next season. We're getting rid of the international games, might get rid of an international break coming there. I think we're gearing up for the right stuff. I see that... Uh, Chelsea were out training in the local park today or yesterday with uh, Jose. They got in trouble for that. But teams are starting to to come out of hibernation to start to position themselves for restarting. Uh, so I, 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 I'm optimistic enough to think that we will finish the season. It's going to be a strange finish. I mean, 
you know, who's to say that Man City isn't going to take maximum points out of the last 10 games and push Liverpool to the wire? You know, who, who's to say that isn't going to happen? But I think it will finish. But I would hate Liverpool to lift a trophy in a, in a silent stadium and then all go home and go to the different countries and what have you. And I can't celebrate until, you know, the first game of next season. That that would be that that's that would be so wrong. Wow, where are you at with this, Gordon? So what what is your ideal scenario? Well, you know, this year I'll be twenty nine, so I've almost waited thirty years. So I think that I have as much. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> uh, I. <laughs> I, I agree because, I mean, basically the whole point of the podcast was to, to say how, you know, the fans really is what makes Liverpool Liverpool. And I think that it would be a weird – it's almost like shaking the demons and you have to do it as a community because the club is a community. It would suck. but I And honestly, I've got so many – just playing soccer growing up my entire life, I've got so many friends, so many different clubs, and – I don't think I think that I would I would receive less banter from people if we you know like last year when we lost to then having to win one behind closed doors or even like with an asterisk about how we didn't didn't play the maximum amount of games or, or whatever this the case may be at the end so I think I'd still like I mean I want the trophy because I I I think that this too could one of my biggest fears was that this just kind of stops a train that was sort of in motion and, and it kind of halts a dynasty because you never know what this does because like you were saying dad it's just this like form is out the window if we start the, the season back over everyone's back from injury and you start from scratch because the players aren't playing soccer and everyone who's ever played soccer knows that you need two or three games you need serious training before you're actually match fit again and so you restart the season it's basically the first day of the year again. And so you don't know, we could not, we could pick it up right away uh, or we could stutter. And this could be the beginning of the end of something that was supposed to happen. So it's, I think it's a real tightrope. I think we have a, a fantastic team. I think that we could, we're going to finish champions. I think it's, it's, that's pretty much a guarantee at this point, just based on all the things that are going on right now. And it looks like you were saying that we're gearing up to finish the season, but it would feel really weird. It would feel, it wouldn't feel right, but I'd still want it. Yeah, and don't forget to mention, you know, I'm going back a few years. I've seen a lot of title winners, so my view on this is a little different. I'd love that. I'd love another title just to get, you know, one back on Fergie, knock him off the perch, and what have you. Uh, but it's it's another title, and in fact, back in the Back in the mid-80s, it got to the point where it was just another title. It's crazy to say that, but it really did get to that point. (laughs) Yeah, what what was that? I missed that. You said you got spoiled. Absolutely. I mean, every season there was a parade. It was either the FA Cup, it was the Champions League, it was the Tribble, whatever. It was every... Every June, every you know, every May, June, there's a parade going on in Liverpool, and so to win the title and not have a parade would be really weird. 
I'll, I'll, t- I'll take the title. I'll take the title. <laughs> <laughs> Had to reconsider that. Are you like, I'll take the title? Yeah. I'll take the title, but uh, it will be weird. It's going to have been a better question, a better person to have asked the question of. He's starved. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, you kind of spoiled from those days, whereas uh, there are probably a lot of our listeners, I would think, have never seen a title, I would guess, for the most part. So, I mean, I'm old enough to barely remember them. Uh, I mean, I became a fan in like 84 uh, and, you know, like I remember some of those glory days, but, you know, I was like kind of like still like too young. So uh, I would, yeah, I would, I mean, like I say, in a great scenario, hopefully they will continue playing games because uh, like I say, I had this vision in my head where we keep scoring goals in a game where we get every minute brings us closer to the title winning final whistle kind of thing. But mm-hmm. I'm hoping we'll get there, but I will take the trophy one way or the other. Cause like I say, it's such a shame to, if we were only out by two points and we were given the trophy, that'd be a different scenario. But on a year like this, it's almost like a no brainer that we deserve the trophy. I think that's probably the biggest difference in my head. If we're up by one point, it would feel like we're stealing and running with it. Uh, whereas, you know, the way we were rolling, it almost feels like it's well-deserved. Let's hope so. Let's see. Let's hope for the best. Let's, uh, I think we were pessimistic enough this past. <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's, let's be optimistic and, like, you know, hope for the best and uh, them going back to the field soon. So, uh, Graham, any parting thoughts? Anything else you would like to share with us? A couple of Gordon stories, maybe, so the listeners <laughs> No, no, no. That's where we can end right now. <laughs> that's a that's that's an open door i, I you know what I, just going back through memory it, i got one for you one of my best nights at anfield didn't involve liverpool that was crazy i was just going back through memories and I'd go back to it was a world cup qualifier 1977 and wales were playing scotland the winner would be progressing to the finals in argentina and I think, I think because of crowd trouble, Wales couldn't play in the usual stadium, which was at Cardiff. So the the, the fallback stadium would have been at racecourse ground at um, Wrexham, but uh, that's only a small stadium. It takes about twenty thousand. So they decided to play at Anfield. Wales being the home team, they figured they'd get a great crowd at Anfield, just just across the river, basically. So. It was hilarious. We had uh, the teams came out in the tunnel. Wales are, to all intents and purposes, playing a home game. There's Joey Jones and John Toshak of Liverpool, and they come running out the tunnel. They go right into the cup, and they both just froze, and they looked at the cup, and it was a sea of tartan for Scotland. And it was, there was maybe 5,000 Welsh fans there and 45,000 Scots fans. It was a blast. It really was. And then um, Joey Jordan, Big George Jordan, he, he hand of God, he he handled the ball in the in the uh, Scotland penalty in the Welsh penalty area in Scotland got a penalty from it. I think the referee was the only person on earth who saw that it who didn't see that it was Jordan that handled it. So Scotland took the lead. And then right before the end, Kenny Dalglish scored an absolute sublime goal at Anfield, and the whole place just went crazy. I think that's my best memory of of a game at Anfield, and it didn't include Liverpool. <laughs> that's awesome, though. Uh, man, Dalglish, those were the he was something. But uh, Gordon, any parting thoughts? 
Yeah, I got one. We can end on a, an optimist, uh, optimist note. But um, so you, Dad, you mentioned that uh, you know it's not a, a you called it a cul-de-sac that FSG should have even went down. Um, and obviously, that's not even with the reversal. Fans that feel the same way as you do, and, and most Liverpudlians, um, would feel that it's not enough. They're not going to forgive and forget, basically. So, what does FSG do to win the fans back? Because I think they've they've done a pretty exceptional job. But at the same time, regardless of what they've done, I feel like there's still that uh, outsiders mentality from from locals. So, what can they do now to to win them back? How? Do you think there is a way back, or do you think this has sort of tainted it? That's a good question. Um, and as I say, I'm, I'm in a unique position, or I'm in a good position where I could see both sides of the coin very quickly because I'm surrounded by damn Yanks. But uh, sorry, <laughs> but I could see both sides, and and uh, I applaud FSG for moving it. And as I said earlier in my soapbox thing. Uh, you know, I, I bless the day that they came on board. I think they're doing a great job. Some hardcore Liverpool fans will always will always be suspicious of a foreign owners. Uh, they got burnt with Hicks and Gillette. Uh, the American business model is not the Liverpool model by any way, shape or form. I don't think they had those people on board anyway in the first place. I think those people just they, they just agreed to deal with it and move forward. And this is just just another faux pas, another step in the wrong direction. Uh, it surprised me that FSG made the announcement to take advantage of the furlough program so quickly. Why did they have to do that so quickly? They could have held off for a little bit, see how things go, see what other teams jump on or what have you. Uh, it was, I mean, what was it, like the 15 to to make a decision on it? They, they, that, that was, they need to think about it a little better. That, that was a major mistake. There was no reason for them to have made that, that call so fast. Um, and there's enough... Scousers in the back room with FSG that uh, can probably direct them better. They were probably let down by their own their own Liverpool staff. So I, I don't think it's a case that they need to mend bridges or fix fences or whatever the terminology is. I think we've already got the two camps. We've got the camp that understands what they are and forgives them for it. And we've got the camp that understands who they are and will never forgive them for it, regardless what happens. And we'll both coexist. I think, I, I don't think, I don't think FSG will be able to mend the fence and I don't think they need to. It doesn't almost sound like it's a no win battle in that sense for FSG. I mean, there are going to be some fans who will never, who will always look over their shoulder because it is American ownership or foreign ownership. I mean, regardless of what they do, everything is going to be kind of like double question regardless. So it's almost like they're in a no-win situation. Best they can do is probably like you're saying, probably a bit more patient and double think everything. Like you make a business decision, then reevaluate to make sure it fits Liverpool before finalizing it kind of deal. But in some ways, they're in a, like a no-win situation. With yeah, some 
And then they, they do a great job and it's recognized the job they do in the community and, and the way they've reached out, reached out with fans with it, the stadium expansion and you know, they, they do a really good job of that. And they there's fans that will just will will never accept it. So I, I don't think they need to do anything. I think they've they put their hands up, they said, you know, hey, we screwed up, we're sorry, uh, we'll look for another way. And I think that's totally acceptable. Awesome. Graham, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this is everything I was hoping for and then some, to be honest with you. And I really think, like I say, it was probably a good uh, nostalgic uh, one for fans who know the club well. And I think it was a lot of good information and new information for the newer fans. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Hey, thanks for the invite, Dimitri. Gordon, behave. All right. Bye now. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Uh, please like, make your comments in our posts and keep following the American Scouser podcast. Uh, check out our new Spotlight podcast with uh, Murphy's Borough as well. Thanks a lot, everybody. And up the Reds. Up the Reds. Thanks, guys.